You're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and this episode was recorded on February 12, 2024. Brett Lowry, our head of special situations, leads this conversation. Welcome to the latest edition of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Lowry, head of special situations here at Academy Securities. First off, a word from our sponsor. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Academy Bets ETF, a veteran impact ETF focused on providing market-based returns while investing in mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities that support veterans. Vets with a Z invest in residential mortgage loans to active duty service members and veterans, as well as loans to veteran-owned small businesses. To learn more, please visit academyetfs.com or contact your broker. The Academy Vets ETF is offered by Academy Asset Management, the asset management affiliate of Academy Securities, a registered broker-dealer. I am joined today by General Robert Walsh and Maria Donnelly from our Geopolitical Intelligence Group and Peter Chur, who is our head of macro strategy here at Academy Securities. Today, we'll be providing updates and our perspective around the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, especially as Israel prepares for a move into Rafah, uh, the escalation between the U.S. and Iran following the deadly proxy attack on the U.S. base in Jordan, and the subsequent U.S. retaliatory strikes against Iran-backed militia, especially its leadership in the last week or so. We'll also talk about the war in Ukraine uh, and also the South China Sea, where we're once again seeing increased military activity in and around Taiwan um, by the Chinese military following the election um, of William Lai in January. Uh, we'll also address a few other areas as well. But I'll pass over General Walsh uh, to set the table uh, with respect to where we are uh, in the war between Israel and Hamas, and we'll take it from there. General Walsh. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Brett. Um, so, just kind of want to start with um, what's the situation in Israel and Gaza? That's correct. That's correct. Effectively, the the current status of the war, especially where Israel is preparing to go into Rafah, and kind of where we see it going over the next month or two. Yeah, I, I think you know it's uh, this is this really challenging problem both for the U.S. backing Israel, uh, but certainly the IDF uh, in there. I can't think of a a more complex problem than to deal with urban operations when you have a situation where you can't get the civilians out of the urban area. You know, when we've done this in the past, uh, you know, whether it's Fallujah, Mosul, Ramadi, places like that, we did everything we could to try to get the civilians out of the area. Uh, this is one of those situations where, you know, based on the situation that they've got nowhere to go, uh, Egypt certainly doesn't want to open their border up. And now you've got the civilians in a very, very tight, uh, congested, you know, place. And Israel wants to continue with the operations. As we see, they've continued to, they're clearing operations, uh, clearing north to south, um, moving into that Han Yunus area. And now they're starting to move towards the south where the population is. So I think just a real, just, you can't think of a tougher situation of how do you reduce casualties when you're getting the civilian population more and more concentrated um, where the threat is, and that's Hamas military, which blends in. They're not wearing uniforms. They're a military that blends in amongst the people, uses the people uh, for their own advantage. And it's becoming more and more of not only a diplomatic problem, international problem, to put pressure on the Israelis to continue to try to reduce those casualties as the casualties mount. And there's really not a real clear answer to that. If Israel's going to try to meet their objective, and their objective seems to have changed a little bit. 
from destroying Hamas to defeating Hamas, which from the very beginning, we've said that trying to destroy Hamas is really an almost insurmountable uh, military objective. To defeat them is another one. They're going more and more down that path. And I think this is going to be more and more of a challenge as they get um, more concentrated. Where do you move the population to in Gaza where you've already got them concentrated in one area? And so from a military perspective, I don't think there's really any answer on how they continue this operation without uh, getting lots of civilian casualties as we've continued to see. Um, and then I would also just say is, is the amount of international pressure that's on the Israelis to reduce that. In many ways, I would have expected more pressure from the Arab states to put more pressure on Israel. So that's kind of been one of those that in a lot of ways, um, are they getting numb to what's going on in Gaza? Or are they actually in some ways supporting what's going on in Gaza? And I think there's a different uh, side to that equation. Well, and if I can jump in on kind of their switching objectives. I mean, if their objective of going into Rafah, they just rescued two hostages. But if it's to diminish or to defeat Hamas, um, are they really risking maybe more blowback? Kind of is the juice worth the squeeze? Are they going to galvanize Palestinians even more so around Hamas? like the classic idea of kind of unconventional warfare and insurgent warfare, are they going to radicalize the population even further? And are they going to, I mean, I feel like that's probably maybe a foregone conclusion in Gaza, but if they're going to, if there's going to be more civilian casualties, then again, do more Arab states kind of come back off of the sidelines a little bit? And again, do we risk further escalation within the region? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Maria. You know, as we think about, you know, where peace talks and where a ceasefire discussion could begin. You know, we're, we're seeing some ideas floating around with respect to a phased ceasefire uh, in exchange for return of hostages. And then the potential for uh, longer term or maybe, you know, even as a condition to a ceasefire down the road, um, obviously the realization of or the recognition um, of Israel by Saudi Arabia uh, and then even a two-state solution uh, to potentially end the conflict, uh, you know, General, what do you think about those as potential opportunities for a ceasefire uh, and how realistic do we think those are at this time? You know, I think one thing that's pretty clear is the um, approach the Israelis took, the IDF going into Gaza, there was a long pause, if you remember, that they went into. It took them over a month before they enter Gaza on their military operations. They wanted to get things right, gain as much intelligence as they could. Um, and then I think it was kind of surprising to a lot of people in a lot of ways that unlike other military operations where they got in and got out, you know, they conducted their operations and got out, retribution. This is one they were very clear from the beginning. They were staying in and they were going to, again, de uh, destroy Hamas um, and they were going to be in there for a while. I mean, you know, they've said that, you know, up to nine months, you know, looking at the operations that the U.S. has conducted in situations like this, it's going to take a long, long time. To, to do, and they went in in a very, very heavy-handed way. You know, when you look at the destruction of uh, buildings, the civilian casualties that have occurred, um, a lot of it was to reduce IDF casualties, uh, and it was just the concentration of the population that, that's caused so much of it. But I think on the other side, they were sending a signal to um, Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon, to Iran that they were serious about this. And you could see that how they were conducting the operations. And I think that's had a very much of a deterrent effect on Hezbollah's operations. I think it's had a deterrent effect on Iran that these guys are serious and we could be next. 
uh, certainly from the standpoint of Hezbollah in Lebanon. I think that's been that point. But I also thought that you know when they the Hamas gave up the initial the, the Hamas gave up the initial hundred hostages, um, that was because I think Hamas was like almost in shock on how serious the Israelis were in this incursion in this battle that they were conducting, uh, and that I think caused them to release a lot of those hostages. There was a pause, a short pause there, and then Israel, the IDF, continued their oper operations. Uh, and now when you start talking ceasefire, uh, I think really if you boil it down, IDF would like to finish the job. They don't want a ceasefire in the sense that we go back to business as usual, where Hamas comes back, the international community comes in and rebuilds, and the uh, Hamas military arm continues to threaten Israel. So you when you, you look at where the ceasefire kind of had come, Hamas threw a lot of demands down on Israel. One, leave Gaza. That's not going to happen. Um, and so when they threw that down, Israel, I think, almost used that as an opportunity to see they don't want to have peace. We're going to continue our operations. So in a lot of ways, I think the IDF, because of the ferocity of their operations, has given them a lot of leverage, not only with Hamas, but I think with Iran, Hezbollah, the international community, too, that... Um, that things are going to go more in the favor is of Israel in these negotiations than they will in the favor of Hamas. And when Hamas tries to put these, you know, uh, extreme demands down, Israel says, "Okay, then the ceasefire is over. We're going to continue to move," and 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 we'll see this continue to go for a while. I think until the international community can try to drive some type of negotiations that are serious between the two sides. As we know, negotiations only happen when both sides are ready to negotiate. And right now, we're not at that point. Right. And I, I think absolutely that one of the biggest things that it goes to, though, is what is Israel's end goal? Because as you said, General, it's switched clearly from make, wiping Hamas off the face of the planet. Um, Hamas has always been very clear of what their objectives are. They've always said, we aim to destroy the state of Israel. Well, Israel kind of started off with those same that same goal in terms of Hamas, but now they're talking more about diminishing Hamas. Um, but really, what is their end goal? What does handing over governance look like? What does handing over Gaza look like? Do they hand it over? At what point? Under what conditions? And what does the international community say on the other side of that? We're seeing Israel aid struggle, um, the aid packages struggle in Congress. So if the U.S. can't kind of get its act together in terms of supporting Israel, um, kind of, and the rest of the international community is far less supportive, what does, what does good look like for Israel? Well, thank you. Hoop and Peter as well. I mean, as we start to think about this war will eventually come to an end. Um, I think Israel's got some more work to do, and they're going to continue to do that. Um, and they're obviously seeing international pushback um, around their operations in Arafa. Uh, but they obviously are saying, look, there's there's hostages here. There's leadership here uh, that we need to eliminate. So, you know, we're obviously not finished yet. But, Peter, with respect to the you know it, overall international opinion and how that's starting to affect uh, you know, the overall economic landscape, not only in Israel, but obviously in that region as well. As this war continues to move forward uh, and proxy forces like the Houthis uh, and others are basically using this war as the reason for attacks in the Red Sea, disrupting of shipping, that kind of thing. As this continues, what are the overall you know, medium term effects uh, if this isn't over in the next couple of months? 
Thanks, Brett. I think, you know, everyone continues to watch oil um, as we are recording this. Um, Brent crude is right around $84, $85 a barrel. That's about the highest it's been in the last three months. Every time it's cut there, it's kind of capped out. And I think the real big risk is that something happens where either the U.S. cracks down on Iranian shipments or something happens to disrupt shipments of oil. And then you see oil prices spike higher. I think that's the big risk right now. Um, it's not much is priced in. I think Brett around 80 is pricing almost nothing. And so at 85, a little bit of risk. I think that easily gets to 95 if we see some sort of disruption. So I think that's the most immediate term impact on the market. I think it's really effectively devolved into this waiting and watching game over what happens to oil prices as it's going to impact market. The secondary effect, I think everyone's watching a little bit, is domestically in particular, how much we're going to be spending on aid to Israel, how much we spend potentially on aid to Ukraine, and what that does for the deficit. So that's probably a medium term. And the other issue is more and more, I think people are really taking time to decide shipping might not be something we can take for granted. And that's something that we've discussed for ages and how it's evolved and people were so comfortable with global shipping for a long time. The events of COVID when China shut down uh, you know, exports, events in and around what we're seeing in Taiwan, just China's general projection of power in the Southeast um, South China seas is telling people to be a little bit nervous. You already have problems in the Panama Canal. That's due to weather re related issues. But now you've got this. I think as companies really are planning out their next five to 10 years, where do we want our supply chains? More and more are really questioning shipping and how reliant we are on shipping. And I'm not sure how easily that goes back, even if this gets resolved, even if we get a two-state situation. People are going to be looking carefully. How stable is it? We haven't mentioned, I don't think, in this podcast yet, but Iran, how close are they to a nuclear being a nuclear power? What do you want to do with that? So I think longer term, you're going to see a shift in shipping. And it's once again, going to reinforce this idea that you have to onshore things and that we are going to have a much more North South America alliance rather than this cross global alliance in terms of your supply chains, because shipping is just really an issue. And I think it's going to be difficult to resolve this conflict in such a way that people are comfortable that it's not going to be a potentially recurring, whether or not every year, but every three, four years. Why take that risk if you can redo your supply chains away from that? Well, and I think the reason that people aren't going to be comfortable is also that these groups have demonstrated that they have the capability to threaten these supply chains. Right. And so if we're not going in kind of boots on the ground, destroying the capabilities, if we're just trying to deter them, if we're just trying to momentarily interrupt these capabilities, then again, that feeds into the, but this isn't permanent. This isn't safe. This isn't secure. And how do I factor that risk in to all of my decisions? If you know that that risk now is persistent because these groups have these capabilities. Yeah, that's a great point, Maria. And I think I've been paraphrasing a little bit and maybe it's a little bit too simplistic, but it feels to me that in the past year or so, our policy of almost kick the can on any issue is starting to be like, where can we kick this can any further? And we're kicking it into a wall. And so kick the can is kind of what we always use, right? We put a little bit of Band-Aid. Everyone knows it's not a real solution, but let's move on. And I think people are now really questioning, how do we move on if there isn't a real solution that's viable rather than something that everyone knows is a, by and large, a fiction that's doomed to failure? Absolutely. 
General, with, with respect to how the U.S. has responded uh, to Houthi threat in particular, um, you know, using airstrikes against anti-ship ballistic missile targets, you know, on obviously on the land in Yemen, uh, going after ships, uh, you know, going after radar installations, uh, you know, and, and other munition storage facilities. Are we doing enough? You know, should we be doing more? These attacks continue. We've definitely stepped up the strikes uh, and we're taking more targets of opportunity off the battlefield, which should be resulting in fewer ballistic missiles flying in the sea against commercial targets or U.S. Navy assets in the region or coalition targets, for that matter. But are we doing enough and could, could we or should we be doing more to not only disrupt but destroy their capabilities? Yeah, Brett, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, it's a much uh, cleaner problem trying to defeat the Russian military as it is Israel and Gaza trying to defeat the um, Hamas or the U.S. trying to take on Shia militias in Iraq and Syria and Houthi, you know, um, forces in, in Yemen. Uh, they blend in amongst the people. They're very much a part of the people. Um, and it's difficult to do this. Uh, if you look at the weapons that have been provided to the Houthis over time uh, via Iran, um, you know, to overthrow the Yemeni's government, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE have been involved in this for a long time. Uh, they've got a lot of weapons in place. And, uh, you know, I kind of go back to when we were trying to look for uh, scuds, how difficult it was to do scud hunting and to try to find those with all the intelligence assets that we had there, uh, trying to find targets. We got pretty good at it in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, finding, you know, um, high value targets, but still a real problem. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, as um is the Houthis in many ways have kind of sucked the international community into this problem now uh, to try to use their ability of, to leverage the shipping that Peter and Maria talked about. Um, and it's how do you ever get rid of all of it? You know, so this is going to be a real problem for a real long time. Uh, the Biden administration, you know, with their focus to try to contain things. I mean, the perfect world, they'd like to contain it to Gaza and not have this become a regional challenge. It's already a regional challenge, you know, in Syria and Iraq and now into Yemen. Uh, how do you try to contain this um, in some type of air campaign that could go on for a long, long time, months and months and months to try to defeat, degrade, where all they've got to do is pull these things out and shoot at inter you know, international ships, go back into hiding, and boom, there was another one. You know, another one hit one of the ships. And, you know, why isn't the international force doing more to eliminate it because it's a damn hard problem and it's hard to find this it's not like going after a a real military that you know where they're at and how you can find them so i think this is going to be a long challenge I, I think if anything i would hope that the international community comes together more to try to put more pressure on the houthis and certainly via iran that this is unacceptable to international norms but i do think as peter talked about too this is something that Shipping is going to see a way of the future, and we saw it with piracy in the past, but now we're starting to see how weak our international shipping lines can be brought out on these non-state actors that we're seeing today. Well, and if I can just continue that kind of even maybe a step further, they're, they're getting exactly what they want out of all of this as well. And by they, I mean like the Houthis, Iran, so on and so forth. We're really good at striking those targets. We are our military is probably the best in the world at this, but when you have, it's so, it's such a disparate 
kind of disseminated capability. And then even when we're imposing costs and we are make, conducting these strikes, we're conducting them against onesie twosie targets. And we're not actually conducting any of them against Iran. We're conducting them against proxies, whether those are the Houthis, whether those are Shia militias. And so the costs we're imposing aren't necessarily being imposed on the people kind of making decisions. And so that's why they use proxies. And so even when we are incredibly successful in targeting, it doesn't really get us to good. It doesn't get us to the goal. And those organizations are still going to have those capabilities because they're being they're being supplied by a country on which we aren't really imposing costs because we can't do that because we are afraid of escalation. Absolutely. I'll pass over to Peter here for, for, for his thoughts on this one too. I mean, obviously, as we as we think about, you know, what the next steps are with Iran, uh, we went after proxy militia forces in Syria and Iraq. Uh, obviously, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, for the retaliatory uh, strikes, but we and we conducted limited operations from there. Uh, we went after proxy militia leadership, but and we hit IRGC, you know, effectively instruction areas uh, and assets. But we didn't go after IRGC leadership directly, and that was on purpose. And we're we're not trying to escalate this one directly with Iran. The ball is back in Iran's court a little bit. How, how do we think they can respond, or how do we think will they respond? Could they potentially back off? Could they say, okay, you know what, we're just going to wait this one out. There's going to be a ceasefire. The war is going to be over and we will have accomplished our mission to elevating the Palestinian problem and supporting our proxies against the United States for, you know, going on three, four, five, six months at that point. Will they come back to the negotiating table with respect to their nuclear program? Or will they just plow ahead with their nuclear program and say, you know what, we're just going to go to, we're going to go 90%. We're not going to support attacks on the battlefield in the near term, but we're going to you know, double down on our ballistic missile program and our nuclear program as a way to effectively say we're going to get the last word. But, Peter, what do you think about how to potentially squeeze Iran a little bit harder? Could we potentially, and we have, you know, gone to the Chinese to say we'd appreciate any support you have here? What are the steps can the U.S. take, uh, obviously, short of outright escalation and war with Iran? You know, since for me, so much of this comes back to oil and i think that is certainly one of the factors that we why we do not want to escalate this is right now with iran selling probably about 3.5 million barrels of oil per day that is keeping a lid on oil prices which certainly has been an issue in the u.s in the past two years right where oil driven inflation caused problems especially for incumbents so i think that's you know high on our policy list i think we have to get back to true energy independence where we're really focused on supporting production of our own energy, both sustainable energy. So make sure we're investing in that in a growing way, but also really investing aggressively in traditional energy sources and not just the discovery or production of the resources themselves, but the refining. And that's you know been such a common theme for us now for the past few years is not only in a lot of cases have we seeded the discovery or production of the raw resources, we've really seeded the refining and re and processing of those. So I think the politicians, if we're going to help alleviate some of the pressure, doing something more domestically, I think if we can figure out what our strategy with Venezuela is, that would be a good thing, though I think that's become even more complicated rather than less complicated with what's going on in Ghana. Um, but to me, a lot of this, right, if we could show more power at home in terms of our energy, 
I, I think that would give those enemies something to think about it. To me, it feels like as they push forward, they do spot this as a weakness. I think it was probably unfortunate that we didn't rebuild the Strategic Petroleum Reserve faster. It's still at fairly low levels. It's been rebuilding a little bit, but not dramatically. So to me, really getting a energy policy back in place where it, maybe, and I think maybe General can speak to this, we've taken our eye off the ball on oil and energy for a little while, right? It was such a key focal point of national policy for a long time. And as we became energy independent, I think we took our eye off the ball a little bit. We chased um, sustainable energy, possibly in ineffective ways. And we've got to get back, make these effective. We've got to figure out how we're going to do this. Uh, we were with an energy company the other day. I thought it was intriguing. They were talking about in the state of Michigan, there's now a 120-day limit on fighting whether a um, area is a usable siting or not for a wind farm. So I think we've got to do things to push this along and get out of our own way. And that would maybe scare our enemies a little bit because my feeling right now is energy and our lack or concern about higher prices is making us weak in terms of our responses and those enemies see it and alleviating that fulcrum of power would help us a lot in our negotiations in the region. Absolutely. Absolutely, Peter. Thank you. You know, and as we talk about energy independence and obviously how the war, hard to believe it's going on two years now uh, with following the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February uh, of 2022, We'll pivot a little bit to where we stand with that conflict, some of the leadership changes in the Ukrainian military, you know, where we see this going uh, for the rest of the year, at least through the springtime, um, as we're obviously seeing Russia step up strikes into, into Kyiv and other places with the massive drone attack the other day. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians are, you know, having some small wins as well um, with respect to the attacks in the oil facilities in St. Petersburg um, and against Russian, you know, naval forces as well periodically. But, you know, General Walsh, where do you see the war going over the next few months? Do we think this is going to continue in a stalemate, uh, at least through the spring and the summertime as, as to when we approach the U.S. election? Or where do we where do we see that going in the near term? Yeah, thanks, Brad. I, I think it does stay along these lines that it's in right now, where we define it as a stalemate. But no major changes, I think, going through the spring into the summer. Um, I think our biggest challenge is, you know, as I look at U.S. foreign policy, the biggest challenge is, you know, administration, administration, it changes. Um, the political divide in the country is, is really causing us lots of problems with a consistent foreign policy. So when you look at um, the support to Ukraine itself, I think is, is you look at Putin fighting for imperial aggression while the Ukrainians are fighting for their very survival. Uh, the West came together very well under U.S. leadership in NATO uh, initially, um, but time to me seems more and more so on Putin's side. And we see the weakness in the West starting to uh, see some cracks. We certainly see it here in the U.S. with our own political divisions, um, just with the aid that's being held up within our own Congress right now. Um, the one thing I would say is, is positive was the Europeans stepped up with the 56 billion that they just provided. So I think, um, you know, we've talked about this before, those countries that are right on the border, the eastern border with Russia, have a whole different view than countries that are further to the west, you know, established in NATO for a long time. Um, but I thought it was, it was it was positive that the Europeans did step up 
knowing that the political problems that the U.S. is having getting that aid package through Congress, and also the amount of uh, focus the U.S. has on what's going on in uh, Gaza with Israel and Hamas right now, that uh, they've taken that on. But at the same time, this long-term view, we're seeing some faltering of Western support. It's emboldening uh, Putin and Russia. Uh, and strategically, I think he's willing to just sit and wait this out and look for whatever opportunity he's got to continue his advances. We see the, the battlefield now is the Ukrainians are really digging in now. They're not thinking offensively. They're thinking more defensively. Uh, we're going to continue to see more of these um, tactical offenses by the Russians to try to encircle key towns and villages uh, to continue to move those lines forward, looking for a breakthrough. Uh, but just as the Ukrainians saw, the the Russians had a lot of time to put in these defensive belts. The Ukrainians are doing the same thing now. So hoping to try to, um, you know, uh, target Russian supply lines is going to be a key if they can do that. But the West just isn't getting them the weapons that they need to be able to do that. So I know that sounds very, you know, negative. But you, back to your point is I don't see any major changes taking place. And if anything, this is now you hear more and more of the discussion on from Putin that, uh, yep, he's willing to come to the negotiation table because he's starting to feel more and more that he's got more leverage than Zelensky has. Absolutely. Marie, any any thoughts on the current conflict in Ukraine and where we go in the next couple of months? I mean, I think the general covered it so well, but I think one of the only other points I would bring up is that we are expecting elections in Russia, and obviously those aren't necessarily meaningful in terms of the outcome, but they are kind of a domestic look for Putin, if you will. Like he doesn't want a big shakeup ahead of those elections. He wants to project kind of stability internally. There have been some kind of burgeoning protests within Russia recently. Um, one of note was over a hundred women who were the wives of soldiers in Ukraine staged a protest outside the Kremlin. And interestingly, we did not see any crackdown by the Russian government. And there's a lot of kind of debate within uh, Russia hand circles, if you will, about why that was. Par partially because those are kind of very sympathetic figures. They're the wives of Russian soldiers, but also because kind of I think no one really wants to rock the boat this year with those elections coming up. It's kind of like almost an ominous silence, a kind of everything's just really tight and everyone's just trying to hold on to get through this period. So I think while the Ukrainians are kind of digging in with what they're calling what, active defense and you have that military leadership change, um, this actually could be a really key time if the Ukrainians are able to either strike inside of Russia or in some way kind of destabilize what's going on, because I think there's just a lot of tension going on ongoing right now within the Russian Federation. No, well, thank you, Maria. We pivot to. South China Sea uh, from from Ukraine. William Lai uh, elected back in January of this year, uh, and in our webinar we we discussed you know prior to that election you know where we where we think where we thought things could go. You know we anticipated Chinese military exercises uh, in response to the election. We saw that in January. Uh, you know General Walsh, where do we see that going over the next couple of months? Do we see an, an increased opportunity for? Additional Chinese exercises. We're hearing reports of balloons flying over the South China Sea over the last couple of days, as they did uh, in mid-January as well. You know, right around the election time. 
We're seeing the Philippines who came out and effectively said, you know, congratulations to William Lai. And you know, th that was not taken, you know, kindly by the Chinese. And, you know, there's more rhetoric going back and forth there. Where do we see the South China Sea for the first few months of this year prior to William Lai's inauguration in May? Now, do we think there will be a continued ratcheting up of tensions or, and I'll turn it over to Peter for some perspective there as well, an increase in dialogue between the U.S. and China? You know, I think um, I, I kind of look at China with the long view on how they would take the long view, though uh, Xi Jinping has said that on his watch, uh, Taiwan will become part of China, um, that I still go back and look at from an economic standpoint, they want to be an economic leader in the globe. And they will continue to ratchet pressure down more and more so on Taiwan. But I don't think we see in the near term any significant military moves to take um, an invasion of Taiwan. But what I think we can expect, Brett, was they saw the election for what it was. They were hoping it would go in a different direction. And now that it went in the direction of the Democratic People's Party by putting William Lai in there, that they're going to continue to put more pressure, economic pressure, military pressure, diplomatic pressure, pressure countries around the globe to not recognize Taiwan. And it's going to be just a constant squeeze on the international community that this eventually becomes a fait accompli. Uh, and we saw that really with Hong Kong. We we saw that going on for a long time. We were saying it was going to happen, and lo and behold, it did happen. Uh, and we used to say that how goes Hong Kong will go Taiwan. And I think that's caused, if anything, more and more uh, of the population in Taiwan to be more leaning independence than leaning towards uh, China. We've seen that very clearly in the polls. So I don't see, we don't see anything as a, a quick drastic move by uh, by Xi Jinping and the PLA, but we do see it's just, just constant strangling economically, diplomatically, and certainly now more and more militarily. And one of the key things I would say here too is there was a time period in there where I think the U.S., NATO was put, spending more and more time in, uh, I think it was the North Atlantic Council. Their number one initiative three years ago was how to deal with China. We saw more and more uh, NATO military members sending ships into um, the South China Sea. The Queen Elizabeth, the first aircraft carrier built in many years, the first place it sailed to was the South China Sea. But now with what's going on um, in Ukraine, we see what's going on in the Middle East. It's becoming a distractor in many ways to have that same type of focus on the Indo-Pacific in uh, countering China. At the same time, the aggressiveness, you mentioned the Philippines, we see the Philippines uh, uh, becoming much more closer to wanting to be a much more that build, rebuilding that alliance with the U.S., partnering with Japan. We see more and more military exercises with the Japanese down into the Philippines. Australia is there. The, the quad uh, uh, group with India, part of that. We're seeing that Chinese, uh, certainly military and diplomatic coercion, causing more of that to come together. So I think we'll see that more and more. And I think that is a deterrent effect on China to not want to make that move. But at the same time, you're going to see much more coercion over time uh, continuing like we've seen. And incidentally, it's another aid package that's struggling through Congress. And it's another one of those situations where we have kind of incoherent policy on a national level where it's just undercutting anything we might do on a tactical level just because we have no kind of strategic vision and 
backing for that in terms of appropriations and in terms of law. Thank you, Maria. Pastor Peter, with respect to you, know, where where he sees talks going uh, over the next couple of months. Now, as we following the November meeting um, between President Biden and President Z, you know, effectively we saw military to military communications reopen. You know, but we're just at the you know scratching the surface on potential economic discussions and you know how do we improve that balance and could we start to take some of the tension out of the region? Where do you see the next couple of months going, Peter, with respect to U.S. Chinese relations? Uh, well, one, I do want to highlight one of the things uh, General Walsh said that we've been talking about for a while, and I just don't think gets enough uh, mention, and that is China's efforts in the United Nations, China's effort with the WHO, China's efforts with FIFA, for what it's worth, in terms of getting the rest of the world to think about Taiwan as being Taipei. So it is this multifaceted approach that they're doing. I continue to believe that China's only way out of their economic slowdown right now is they are going to have to spend their way out a little bit. I think we are going to see a little bit more aggressive internal policy in terms of their spending. Um, as we've discussed here before, China and Xi does have to be a little bit careful of what happens to his middle class. They are powerful enough. They're wealthy enough. And we saw that when we had the last round of protests against the COVID restrictions, all of a sudden... COVID magically disappeared in China and the restrictions were lifted effectively overnight. So I think they're gonna to have to do that. But we've been talking about the shift from made in China to made by China, where to get out of this economic morass, they're gonna to have to distribute goods in the, that they make domestically and brands that they make domestically to a broader audience, right? I do not believe that with everything going on in the world, they're gonna be able to convince foreign companies to invest heavily in China to build out. and as we've been talking about this, all of a sudden you have people like Elon Musk effectively demanding tariffs on Chinese auto manufacturers, saying that without tariffs, the Chinese auto manufacturers will dominate auto manufacturing. If you watched the Super Bowl this weekend, you certainly figured out what Timu is, or at least saw the name of Timu. And as far as I can tell, that's a way for China to sell their brands globally, the very thing that we've been talking about. So I think they are going to push in that direction. I think, unfortunately, with we've got an election coming, they know that we are probably want economic type deals that look good because incumbents always do much better if the economy is humming along. So I'm afraid that we will do some sort of deal near term that looks positive, that the longer term repercussions are more serious. So that's what I see happening is China doing a little bit more on their own to boost their economy, China come to some sort of economic deal with us where maybe it looks like they give up something near term, but they probably win longer term. And in the meantime, I expect this whole concept of shifting from made in China to made by China, taking on more and more um, notice of people and really starting to think about what do Chinese brands actually look like? What are they developing? What do they have? And where can they sell them again? I think it's going to be more and more emerging markets but all those Timu commercials were a little bit of a wake-up call, even to me. And this has been one of my, you know, pet projects is looking at this. And even I was caught by surprise as I read more about what's going on with something like Timu, what could be potentially going on. And all of that, just if you just take a step back, I think too many people in America are like, well, China's weak. They're going to be desperate. I think China's economy is weak right now, but they will try and fix it. And I'm not sure that 
they will be desperate in their fixing. I think they will do something that's longer term and strategic, which to me keeps coming back to this effort to sell their brands and goods globally. And we've got to be careful how we play with this, how we deal with this. And at the same time, we have very real national security issues that we have to protect because this is one of those things, again, we kick the can down the road often enough. And here we are saying, China is very competitive with us in some key areas that we want to be beating them for national security in terms of chips and things like that. So I guess I'm not super optimistic. Yeah, I would just uh, add to what Peter's saying. Um, you know, as we talked about other areas in the globe that are important to us, Brett, is I think from a national security perspective, it's China, China, China all the time. And uh, And if you look at that, what Peter's saying is, you know, as American businessmen and women still try to stick their toes into China, we're seeing much more restrictions put on, on them by national security laws inside of China. Um, let it be known that we are in a tech war with China. A lot of this is driven from a national security perspective and not want to get that dual use technology into the hands of Chinese. So more restrictions are coming from the U.S. side. But I think if you take a look at what Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is doing, they're putting a lot of restrictions on U.S. companies and their own companies doing business there also. So I think this tech war that we're in right now is going to be there for a long time, and it's going to be influencing uh, what goes on between relations between us and the, and the Chinese. And I think today, CEOs now, or in the past was, how could they get into China and do business? Now they're thinking about how do we operate inside China with the current business we have? And as Peter has said in the past, how do we start moving to other places so we're not uh, having so many um, you know, restrictions that, that China puts on us and having all our eggs in one basket? Yeah, and I would say the flip side of the national security China, China, China policy, I think we're supposed to be looking at India, Japan, and South America. I think those are going to be big areas that we have to develop better relationships with. India can be a you know huge opportunity to sell goods into and produce goods. So I think we've got to figure out how to get into India. I think Japan's becoming one of the biggest beneficiaries of all the you know distrust what's going on in Southeast Asia because Japan is so closely tied to the U.S. and the large NATO powers that they will clearly not be an area that China can pick on. And so I think you're going to see more and more businesses try and figure out how do they take advantage and rebuild businesses within Japan. And finally, South America, just by line of sight and everything else, is such a much more competitive background for us. And unlike the Middle East or certainly parts of Africa, where you have much more dictatorships or autocratic rule, you do have democracies in South America that we should be able to, with our proximity and everything else, figure out how do we do better business there and redevelop our global supply chains so we still remain in a global economy, but our key supply chains and our key counterparties are going to be different. And that's what we've got to be doing. So while you're pushing down and fighting with China, you're developing these relationships. And I think most important to me are India, Japan, and South America, and of course, Canada and Mexico. But that, I think, is already a given. Thank you, Peter. And our well said. In, in, our, in our last couple of moments here today, uh, I just want to touch briefly on Venezuela. Uh, obviously, it was in the news on Friday into Saturday morning uh, that Maduro was building up military forces on the border with Guyana. Uh, back in December, we had a sit rep and we put out a sit rep again this weekend uh, as an update around the annexation of Guyana and you know what do we think the chances are of you know some kind of military incursion. Um, General Walsh, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but just wanted to 
rehash it because it is topical uh, and obviously does have, you know, effectively overarching, um, you know, overlap with a lot of situations that we're focused on globally, especially with Venezuela's ties to Russia and Iran. What do we think happens here? Uh, do we think Maduro is just saber rattling for the upcoming election? Um, or do we think something more strategic could happen in Venezuela between Venezuela and Guyana? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, Brett, with you look at how much going on on the globe, it's no surprise that actors like uh, Maduro steps into this, just as we other see the other bad actors around the globe, to take advantage of what's going on and how busy the U.S. is. I could also look at, you know, some of the relationships as Biden tried to move towards the better of those relationships with Venezuela. Now you see what you get when you deal with these autocratic leaders. Um, and so now... In the near term, I think it's a lot of posturing for his population, uh, but I don't see an invasion. I don't think any of our global intelligence groups sees an invasion coming in the near term. It's more this posturing for his own sake for the elections, um, but it is kind of in a lot of ways a slap in the face when you look at the U.S. trying to have let more influence in um, Venezuela, have a better relationship to them, and then you turn around and you end up with a situation like this, and how do you react you know, maybe the harder line was the better way to keep those harder line initiatives in place. Thank you, sir. Marie, any, any thoughts on Venezuela and where we think things go from here? I mean, I think that just capacity wise, I don't, I also agree that I don't think there's a, an invasion coming. I, it's also just to what end, because again, if he wants to secure kind of strength internally, then that's one thing. Does he actually want to invade I, I would be skeptical as to what he actually gains by doing that, that he doesn't gain by kind of threatening to do that. And so that 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 would just be my kind of read on the situation. But I do think, again, kind of like what Peter mentioned, in a lot of these cases, we're learning what that there are these risks. And I mean, we knew about them, but the reminder of risks when you're actually trying to make decisions when you when they're in the news, you remember that maybe this isn't the safest way to do business. Maybe I want to avoid this. Maybe I want to avoid that. And I think that this kind of it definitely puts the U.S. on a back foot when we're looking at all of these things and U.S. companies on a back foot because we're having to face all of these risks in every single one of these regions. And overall, we don't really have kind of a coherent strategy or national policy that we can point to and say, if you do this, this is the consequence. And so what are we trying to accomplish and how, and are we going about anything that'll actually get us there? Thank you, Maria. And Peter, I'll give you the last word with respect to Venezuela and anything else we want to address today. Obviously a lot going on in the world. Uh, we wanted to keep it to uh, a few key topics today, but Peter, I'll give you the last word, sir. Uh, thanks, Brett. Again, I think Venezuela is a situation that, we've watched as a microcosm of the world where Russia said they were happy with the leadership there. They say Barrado occasionally, the leadership's Maduro is still there. We said we didn't want Maduro. We weren't going to do business when Maduro was in charge. We're having to, you know, scale back on that kind of promise and try and do some business with them. And I think we've got to get out of our own way a little bit and say, okay, what do we need this world to look like? How can we shape it? And what compromises do we have to make to do that? And can we accept those compromises? But we should be able to deal with countries like Venezuela. We should be in with Brazil. And all these things, I think, should just be wake-up calls that we've taken our eye off the ball. And I almost go back to that thing we've talked about, probably not for a long time, but that I first learned when I came to Academy, the concept that business follows the flag. 
And that used to mean that the flag would get planted somewhere and business would follow. Unfortunately, I think the flag has been getting uprooted and pulled away. And unfortunately, business follows that. And as we've pulled out that flag, business has moved away from some of these regions. And I think we've got to establish where can we plant that flag and operate and develop and really get coherent strategies around energy with a goal to sustainable, but also how do we maintain existing needs and supplies with a degree of realism, not kind of pie in the sky, hopefully this all works and get that coming and figure out how we want to deal with Japan, India, South America, um, huge opportunities, but we, we've got to get, you know, I think Maria said it over and over, you know, some sort of cohesive strategy and unfortunately, I'm worried that our two-year election cycle, and I now consider it a two-year election cycle because the midterms seem more important than they once were. How do we get a coherent policy when we're constantly campaigning and money raising rather than sitting in D.C. and figuring out where we want to go? And maybe as General Walsh has pointed out and some of the other generals in the past, that the national security framework within D.C. works fairly well. And as these things get elevated to a national security we'll see a much more adult-like behavior on the country's part and do the right things that can make us successful again, rather than kind of pulling back here and there. And there's so many good things going on. We're a leader in AI, we're all these things. And I do think this getting better supply chains creates better jobs for Americans, and that will be good long-term as well. So let's just keep getting our act together. Thank you, Peter. And General Walsh, thank you so much. Maria, always great to see you. And Peter, thank you so much for your time. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for your support. We look forward to talking with you on the next Geopolitical Macro Strategy Podcast. Thank you all again for everything you do for Academy Securities, and we will talk to you again soon.